Uh, good to be back with all of you. Uh, John Husted is not here today. Uh, Dr. Acton is, and uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, is working on uh, some of the business rollout that we're getting prepared uh, to announce in a few days. I uh, want to start by uh, saying to our son, Brian, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Brian. Uh, there will be a time uh, when we'll play minor league baseball again. We all look forward, look forward to that. Uh, I'm wearing today the University of Toledo tie, and uh, we have uh, a number of people on our team who went to UT. Um, Sarah Ackman, who went to the law school. I graduated from law school, and Michael Murray, who graduated from with an undergraduate degree. Uh, they're two people I rely on every single day, and I will give them a shout-out and tell them how much I appreciate all the work uh, that, that they do. Let me uh, start off with kind of a, a, good, news, a good news story. Um, one of the things that has been so impressive uh, that I've seen and observed is how Ohioans have just come together to help each other. Let me tell you about some uh, wonderful people uh, in Marietta, uh, Mid-Ohio Valley. Eric and Sarah Sauls have turned their restaurant, uh, Joe Mama's Kitchen, into a meal service for senior citizens. Um, when the stay-at-home order was issued, Sarah, who is also a nurse, became concerned about the senior citizens. Uh, venturing out to the restaurant to get their carryout. So they decided to only serve senior citizens for a minimal charge of $5 per meal. If someone couldn't pay, Joe Mama's Kitchen would find a way to get the meals paid for. Word traveled fast throughout the community. Donations kept coming in from organizations and from individuals. Now every single meal, every single meal has been paid for and the donations continue to come in. Volunteers deliver these meals daily to the senior citizens on 13 different routes and include people of all ages, including high school students. There's always a need for these helpers in all of our communities throughout our great Buckeye State. I encourage all of you to look for these volunteer activities uh, if you can do so safely while practicing physical distancing. Uh, I salute Joe Mama's Kitchen their volunteers for stepping up during this time. What a great, great story. I also want to take a moment to recognize some really committed Ohioans. Uh, today is National Medical Library Professionals Week. Uh, National Medical Laboratory Week, excuse me. Right now, uh, there are so many folks doing testing at labs nonstop. They're doing an absolutely fantastic job. So to all of you at our labs around the state of Ohio, thank you. Uh, thank you for making a difference. Thank you for getting the results back so quickly because that is really essential. Uh, we salute you and we thank you for that, for that great, great dedication. As you know, to test for COVID-19, we use testing kits, and to be able to test samples, a reagent is needed, a reagent. The reagent is this kind of the secret sauce uh, that's necessary uh, 
to tell if a sample does contain the COVID-19 virus or whether it does not. Each testing company uh, uses a different type of reagent, and those reagents have been extremely limited, and we've talked about that before, that the limitation, the fact that we do not have enough reagents has limited the testing that we can do in Ohio, one of the reasons we've been limited. Uh, that's caused us in Ohio and across the country to test fewer samples than we would have been able to do if we had unlimited amount of reagent. On Sunday, I spoke uh, with the Food and Drug Administration, and also on Sunday, I spoke with Vice President Pence about this. And I spoke to them uh, particularly in regard to a company called Thermal Fisher. Thermal Fisher has an application to have a new reagent approved in front of the FDA. And so I talked to the Vice President about this. I talked to the FDA about this uh, and asked the F FDA uh, if they could move this forward. Today, uh, we received some very, very good news. This morning, I got a call directly uh, from the Commissioner of the FDA, Dr. Stephen Hahn. He called me to tell me that they have approved a new version of Thermal Fisher's reagent. So that is very, very good news. Most of the major labs in Ohio use Thermal Fisher's machines. And the problem has been there just has not been enough reagent. Uh, now they can use these test kits with the new reagent, as well as the original COVID-19 test kit and reagent. Uh, this will significantly, significantly expand the capacity of these labs. It is not the only thing slowing us down, but it is, it is significant, and this was a good victory. Uh, the approval will greatly expand our state's ability to increase our testing capacity. Thermal Fisher is hoping that they can give Ohio enough reagent so that by mid-May we will see significant increases in the number of tests that we can conduct in Ohio per day. We are also working uh, with other companies as well to make additional uh, reagent kits available so that we can continue to ramp up testing in Ohio. As I said, this is, this is very good news. Testing is vital as we begin to reopen our economy. We want to reopen the economy. We get, want to get people back to work. It's important that we do it the right way, that we do it the safe way. And the ability to test and test further than we can do today uh, is it one of the components that will go into that safety. Uh, the others, of course, have to do with the workplace. It has to do with what the companies do, businesses do to protect their customers, uh, but also to protect uh, the folks who work there. But testing uh, is, is one of the things that we need to really be able to see this succeed, succeed as we move forward. I'm announcing today, because of the importance of this, the formation of a testing strike team, a testing strike team that will be led by two former Ohio governors, Governor Dick Celeste and Governor Bob Taft. I called each one of them this morning and asked them if they would do this. Each one, without hesitation, said that they would. Uh, and for that, I am extremely 
grateful. These two leaders have a depth of experience in Ohio and internationally. They know their way around Ohio. They know their way around the world. Simply put, these two individuals know how to get things done, and they know how to make things happen. Uh, they will work with Ohio leaders from business, from higher education, and from public health to be part of the effort to help us source critical testing items. And they will work also to oversee what we are doing within the state of Ohio to make sure that we are maximizing uh, the capability that we already have here. Expand the capability, maximize the capability that we have. Although from different political parties, they both started in public service in similar ways, and their career paths have some remarkable similarities. Early in his career, Governor Celeste worked at the Peace Corps headquarters and was also then personal assistant to the United States Ambassador to India. As a young man, Governor Taft served in the Peace Corps as a volunteer in Tanzania. Tanzania, excuse me. Sorry about that, Bob. They both served two terms as governor of Ohio, and after they terms, their terms, they continued their careers in higher education. Governor Celeste is president of Colorado College, and Governor Taft as a distinguished research associate at the University of Dayton. Governor Celeste was also a state representative from Lakewood, Ohio, Lieutenant Governor, Director of the Peace Corps, and Ambassador to India. Governor Taft served as Hamilton County Commissioner, State Representative, and Ohio Secretary of State. As you can tell from these resumes, these are two remarkable individuals, and I am very grateful that they were willing to come forward to help me, to help the state of Ohio as we move forward. They both love Ohio, and they both, as I said, were quick to say yes when I asked them if they would do this. They will use their skills, their talent, their experience, their contacts, their life experiences to help us in this critical mission to make sure that we improve testing and expand testing in the state of Ohio. Let me now ask um, Director Ursel McElroy to join us. Uh, yesterday, I was hearing uh, the director exceedingly well and watching her on the screen. Uh, when I got home, I found uh, my wife Fran said that nobody else could hear her uh, besides those of us in this room. So I've asked the director to come back and um, tell us exactly you know, what is going on in, in her office uh, and really tell us uh, about how they are dealing with the coronavirus. Uh, Director, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Governor. Happy to join you again uh, to highlight this very important issue, access to high-quality care for all Ohioans without COVID-19 and those who contract the illness. And as you noted yesterday, there has been heightened recognition across the country of the early indications that communities of color, in particular the African-American and Hispanic communities, have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and the illness it causes. So it is incumbent upon us as we respond to this crisis as a state, including our path forward to restart 
to address these issues. Now, in the days ahead, we must act with a sense of urgency to raise the level of consciousness about these disparities and ramp up our efforts to address them. Simply, sir, it's the right thing to do. And like most things we dealt with during this crisis, it is connected to so many other things, and it will be important to have the best minds and influencers at the table. So I will join my colleague, Director Alicia Nelson of Recovery Ohio, to co-chair the Minority Health Strike Force team you have directed us to form. And this Strike Force team will examine issues such as underlying health conditions, social determinants of health that can widen gaps across communities, and economics. The team will also address the unfortunate expressions of hate and discrimination during this crisis. Finally, tangible steps will be put in place. Education, stronger data collection, and recommended policy creation or changes where needed. So, Governor, we stand ready with you, Lieutenant Governor Houston and Dr. Acton, to take on this important work and report back to the people of Ohio. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for, for taking that on. Uh, we are very grateful. As we talked about yesterday, the numbers uh, nationwide, uh, as well as in Ohio, uh, show that there's a disproportionate of African-Americans um, who have been hit uh, by this virus. And we want to try to do something about that. Uh, we want to try to uh, bring people together uh, to really look at this problem and look at this issue. So we thank you for uh, yourself for doing this. Uh, we have put together a good group. Uh, yesterday we, we made available on our webpage, the individuals who are part of this group. Uh, it's people not just from government, but people from the private sector, people from public health, people who understand uh, what is going on, and we're very, very grateful for each one of them uh, to serving. Um, we have sad news uh, that I want to share. One of the residents of the Northwest Ohio Developmental Center has died from COVID-19. Uh, this is the first COVID-19 death of a resident at a developmental center. Uh, this individual, this resident, had been diagnosed on March 31st. Our thoughts are with uh, the family, uh, as well as the other residents and staff at the Northwest Ohio Developmental Center. Um, congregate living, people are living together, uh, is... Uh, inherently uh, difficult during a COVID-19 uh, epidemic, and this is very sad news. In addition to the COVID-19 case data that we provide on the coronavirus.ohio.gov website, uh, we also include a breakdown of COVID-19 information for Ohio's state-owned congregate living centers. These would include our prisons, state psychiatric hospitals, our youth detention centers, and our developmental disability centers. So that information is, is available. As we get closer to warmer weather and we get into summer, we're also, of course, getting closer to fair season. Uh, no one loves the county fair, the state fair, more than, than I do, uh, or more than my wife Fran does. Um, we have 94 county independent fairs in Ohio. Uh, they all attract uh, 
great crowds every single year. We don't know uh, what's going to happen this year. Uh, but we also do know that the costs incurred by the fair boards uh, continue. Uh, so we have been evaluating uh, how we can be of assistance. Uh, Ohio Department of Agriculture Director Dorothy Plant has been working on this with the Ohio Fair Managers Association. Uh, Ohio's operating budget set aside $4.7 million in the Agricultural Society Facilities Grant Program to help county and independent fair managers cover the costs of needed facilities and ground improvements this year. That was in the budget. Uh, no one, of course, foresaw uh, that we'd have the coronavirus uh, epidemic. Um, the way it is provided now, the way we had provided it was that each fair can get a grant of $50,000 if they provide a matching grant to put towards these expenses as well. Uh, oftentimes, these matching funds come from local governments or local businesses. Uh, but this year, we know that COVID-19 has put a strain on local budgets and businesses' bottom lines. And so today, I'm announcing that this year, the Ohio Department of Agriculture will waive the requirement that agriculture societies must come up with that match. Uh, this way, the fairs that qualify will still have this money to put towards improvements even if the local match is not available. Um, fair managers have until May 30th to apply via the Ohio Department of Agriculture's website. And we have some good news uh, out of Jobs Ohio, uh, out of People's Bank and the first federal home savings. As we continue to work through this pandemic, Ohioans are coming together to find solutions to assist our small businesses. Today, Jobs Ohio, People's Bank, headquartered in Marietta, and re the recently merged federal, First Federal Bank and Home Savings Bank, headquartered in Defiance and Youngstown, are announcing a partnership to support those banks' existing small business clients in Ohio. The partnership with these Ohio-headquartered financial institutions will help small businesses maintain operations and payroll during the COVID-19 pandemic. Jobs Ohio has committed up to $50 million to assist People's Bank and First Federal Home Savings Bank. This assistance will bolster each bank's ability to provide additional financing on favorable terms for local businesses in good standing, small businesses that would otherwise not be able to access this credit due to the COVID-19 virus. Eligible businesses can use the loan for working capital. That can include, it can use it for payroll, rent, mortgages, or other fixed debts, utilities, and other bills. I want to thank uh, these Ohio banks and Jobs Ohio for this unique partnership. Uh, this will get much-needed capital in the hands of small businesses uh, that are so critical to Ohio's economy. Uh, let me have one more item. Uh, less than two weeks ago, the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation Board of Directors approved to send up to $1.6 billion in dividends back to Ohio employers. Uh, this dividend is intended to ease the impact of COVID-19 on Ohio's business community and the economy. Starting yesterday, uh, the first round of these checks will ma mail to employers who can invest that money into the needs of their businesses. A total of 170,000 checks will be mailed over the next five days. So business owners, uh, you can be sure that you make sure that uh, you get your mail. Uh, the check is in the mail. 
Uh, this dividend equals approximately 100% of the premiums paid in 2018. Dividends like this are possible thanks largely to strong investment returns, declining injury claims, and other cost-saving measures. Approximately $1.4 billion will go to private employers, and nearly $200 million will go to local governmental taxing districts such as counties, cities, township, and, and schools. Let me now turn uh, to Dr. Acton. Dr. Acton. Thank you, Governor. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we'll start first with the numbers, and then I have a few things I'd like to share with you. Um, and I know this board, at least, is a little harder to see. Um, when I looked at it last night at home, I can see that it's hard, my husband told me. But it does say today, and it's on our website, that we have 13,725 cases in Ohio, uh, 87 counties reporting. And um, we have now reached 557 deaths in Ohio, and including um, the unfortunate situation we've had that the governor mentioned. And um, if we go to our next slide, um, again, we are still at about um, deaths in about 4% of our cases. So this is, again, a, a very lethal disease. Um, we have, at this point, still a majority of folks being tested being healthcare workers and also people in long-term care facilities or higher-risk groups who really are in need often of hospitalization. But we've reached now 94,000 tests having been done in Ohio. Next slide. Again, we are watching our, our trends um, and, and the cases reported in the last. We're seeing a little dip here, so we're really looking for a five day trend, and, and in reality, we're looking for directions over 14 days. As we start to look for changes as we move forward, every decision and every move we make will be based on two to three weeks, because it takes about two weeks to see from someone getting infected to seeing that they actually have the infection. And then we look for longer-term changes in our hospitalizations and our death rates. Again, we know our numbers are still the tip of the iceberg because we're not testing many of the cases. Um, similarly, we are seeing a bit of an uptick lately, uh, slightly in our hospitalization trends. I think Monday, a Monday ago, we had 902 admissions for COVID-specific hospitalizations, and uh, today we're at 1,091. So um, we're sort of watching these trends. Um, in the days to come, we're going to have some new trends, Governor, that we'll be following, some numbers that help us sort of navigate our way forward. So I'd like to tell a little bit um, something that the Governor mentioned um, when he was on a national news show yesterday. He mentioned some work and some consultation we're doing with Partners in Health. So Partners in Health is really one of the most premier global health organizations. And, and has been on the front of fighting infectious disease um, for many, many years. Beginning in Haiti, the governor and his wife, Fran, have done extensive work in Haiti themselves. And there was a very famous book written about it called Mountains Beyond Mountains that really told the story of the founders of Partners in Health. It was Paul Farmer, physician, um, 
who did some bold things and just embedded himself in Haiti as part of his med school, um, often missing class, I don't know if you knew that, uh, to work. And a classmate of him, his, who became Dr. Jim Young Kim. Um, and then Ophelia Dahl, the, Donald, the daughter of Ronald Dahl, the children's author. And that friendship was actually what began some of the most um, aggressive and innovative work to attack some of the world's health problems. And um, Jim Young Kim particularly, he went on to be the president of Dartmouth and head of the World Bank. And early on in this, I was able to talk with him. And we had a, a really great conversation about what other countries around the world were doing where they were really starting um, to make some advancements in battling this virus. So as the governor said, we will be engaging with partners in health and others. We have a call scheduled tonight. But slowly we've been building a workforce so that we can uh, not just sit back and watch this virus unfold, but really get a lot more aggressive and take it to the virus. We don't want to just flatten this curve. We want to stay ahead of the curve. And we are all enduring what was a blunt instrument, a blunt surgical tool of uh, the social distancing we're doing. But um, in the future, you know, we really see a path where we have a much broader range of tools to fight this war. Now, Dr. Kim said in, in an article that published recently that you need five things to work your way forward. We all know that we're going to need to live with this virus, and we're going to live with it for a while to come, at least 18 months. So what the governor's team and with the hope of um, our past governors and others is we are building an extensive response and recovery plan and network. You have to be able to do the social distancing that we're doing. The things that we're doing and the additional new things we've added continue to be a very powerful weapon in stopping the spread of the virus. But you also have to do testing, and, and we are pushing the envelope every possible way because you have to test someone to know they have it. And then you have to do contact tracing, which means, again, those disease detectives who, who talk to you when you're a case and find out everyone you've been in relationship with, anywhere you've gone in the past 14 days. And then those contact tracers reach out to those people and tell them to quarantine for 14 days. And when we have enough testing, test those folks. And in doing that, you can start to snuff out what could be the spread of the virus. And additionally, you need to isolate and quarantine people. And the fifth part is you need excellent treatment. And our treatment is evolving, ultimately a vaccine, but it could be an antiviral. It's new things like um, the plasma that we're doing when we're doing um, serum where people with antibodies can be transfused into people who are sick. And so all new tools will come. So it's social distancing, contact tracing, testing, isolation and quarantine, and treatment. And what Jim Young Kim said was, hope is of little use unless it's accompanied by a bold, and vigorous plan. And the governor and what he'll be laying out for you before we get to May 1st, but in the days to come, mm -hmm. is more and more parts of that bold and vigorous plan for Ohio. So there are going to be two parts to our efforts. One is 
this army of workforce, because there were, you know, the people we had who usually do contact tracing were you know, public health department-led epidemiologists. But because this is a global pandemic, the scope is so big, you need an army. You need 10 to 15 people per 100,000 population. And that is the army we've been building and are continuing to build. Um, and so be being able to see that outbreak, whether it's a prison, a nursing home, a community, a couple of cases um, that were associated anywhere, and be able to do that work is a way, that's the firefighting side of our house. When we see an outbreak expanding, that we can snuff out the fire. And we're building a command and control structure that sees all the fires in the state and moves on them. And if they don't have enough PPE or they don't have enough testing, we are moving resources so that we can quickly put out the fires of the spread of infectious disease. Ultimately, we knew that one person could give this disease to three people. But what we want is to ultimately have one person giving to one person, ultimately one person giving to a half a person and less than a half. And in watching that virus spread and decreasing it, which is what social distancing did, we snuff out the fire of spread and we stop the virus from ever becoming something that takes out our hospitals. On the other side of our plan is what I'm now calling the dimmer switch. And this is everything that all of us wish for. This is where we all wish to get back out and get back to the things we're doing, whether it be work or other activities. So you got to put out your fires. And what we did getting into this was flip the light switch. But to get out of this, we have to slowly move a dimmer switch, watch a bunch of data and reaction to make sure not too many fires start happening. Because every time we open up, it is guaranteed that we will increase the spread of this infection. But the question is, can we control it? And that's, that's the dance that we will be walking. So you do a few moves. It might be in the area of business. It might be in the area of schools. It might be the area of parks. It might be in the area of what you do at a hospital. All the policies and things we've done, we have to weigh risk and benefit. And what you want to do as you start back out into society is do the lowest risk things first and watch how we deal with the spread of infection. And then you dial the switch a little more and do a few more things. So in every area of our state, whether it's how we run our businesses, how we, how we run a school, we are sitting around thinking, how do we live in this new world? How do I do a few more things but do them safely? So you have to have best practices of what safety looks like. We've seen this in essential businesses where we now have plexiglass and we now walk down aisles in the grocery store differently. And those are the kinds of new innovations that our businesses and our schools are hard at working at. How do we live with this virus in a way that we stop the spread? And at the same time, how do we do a little more all the time without creating too big a risk that really shuts us down and has us have to go all the way back down into a lockdown situation. So we've got our dimmer switch planning, and we've got our firefighter putting out fires plan, and that is the dance and the plan that the governor's team is working on. Do I wish we could just hand you a plan every day? 
There was no playbook for this. The whole world is figuring out this equation of the dimmer switch and the firefight put out. And I want you to know that Ohio is on the front edge of that. Lastly, um, I do want to say, um, as it is Holocaust um, Memorial Day, um, I want to talk about hope for a moment. Um, there has been so much done by Ohio citizens to help each other and be good to each other through this crisis. This is a war. It has been a silent enemy all along. And what a pandemic does is far more than kill people. The real threat of a global pandemic is so much more extensive because it basically disrupts civil society. It disrupts supply chains. It disrupts, it shows the chinks in all our armor. It shows our imperfect, you know, technology systems that might be 30 years old, you know, that only had a volume of having to deal with so much work. It disrupts in such a way that it is a national security issue. And worst of all, it can turn us against each other. And so it's very, very important. I am very optimistic that we have the grit and resiliency to weather a war, especially given the outstanding leadership we have. But it takes just that. It's going to take us digging very deep and having good days and bad days and digging deep again. And I tell you, I myself refight that battle every day. You're not alone in that at home. But it is about the heart and soul of our country. And it re reminded me, again, as a person who has a blended religious background, uh, my real birth mother was Christian. My real birth mother, father was Jewish. I've studied and understood all faiths, and I look for inspiration. But this is a book that was worth digging out again. It's Viktor Frankl's seminal classic. He's a physician who survived the Holocaust. And his book was Man's Search for Meaning. And to endure hardships, whether it be a really rough childhood that doesn't end on a dime but goes on and on year after year, or to endure something like a Holocaust or the myriad of other horrors that people endure, even on this day, all over the world, even in camps right now in Syria, these things are endured by not just hope alone. What he learned as a psychiatrist was it was dealing with reality. You have hope, but first you have to know the reality of the ground you stand on, and you have to accept it. You can't wish it away. You can't push it away. And the people who survive can balance understanding the reality, but still having that optimism and hope. And in, the, in that balance, hope alone, people don't survive, because as, as they go through wave and wave of disappointment, it knocks the wind out of them. But our resiliency is marrying those. And, and I think the reality is we have this tough road ahead. It's not the world we knew for any of us. And together, we'll build a resilient, strong path forward. So that is my wish for you. Uh, thank you, and for all of us. Thank you very much. Jim Adi, first question. Thank you, Governor. Thanks for doing this. I have a question. Yes, uh, Relative, I realize that every state is different, but the state of Georgia has already announced a long, long list of businesses, barbershops, um, hair salons, bowling alleys, gyms, fitness centers. Does that make you, uh, first off, think that 
our plan should be a little bit more open. Have you yet decided what phase one is going to look like and can you give us a better idea of what's going to fit into that phase one? The goal, Jim, is to get as many people back to work safely uh, as we can. And so, you know, we, we've kind of laid out, we'll talk in a few days about what we're doing with hospitals. We're trying to open hospitals up. Hospitals are a safe place to be. Um, they're a place that we had to restrict some of the activity because we worried about not having enough of the personal protection equipment. Um, we're going to come out in the next several days. I'm looking now at recommendations from the hospital association. So move, movement forward on hospitals, letting them do more, move forward. Uh, they're an essential part not only of people's health care. They're an essential part of the community uh, where, they, where they exist uh, throughout, throughout the state of Ohio. Uh, second, we're going to look for those businesses uh, that can open and put in place the safety that is needed. Uh, safety w might include some reconfiguration. Uh, it might include, we've seen, we have some examples of manufacturers who, who have been open uh, as an essential business. We have other manufacturers, other people who make things that have not been open. Uh, we're going to look to see if we can open some of them. Um, you know, they're going to look different. People are going to have, people are going to be wearing masks. People wearing gloves, uh, and then when then when we start moving towards towards retail, uh, we're going to move retail out again in a situation so people people can be uh, safe, uh, the employees can be safe, and 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 uh, the customers co who come and retail will be able to be safe. So um, it's not going to be done overnight. We're going to try to get again as as many people out working. Uh, as we can as we move forward, and we'll have some uh, announcements in regard to that. Um, if, if you look at some of the things that we all love to do, uh, the big gatherings, uh, where we come together for sporting events, come together for concerts, those are not going to be the first things that open up uh, because those present the most challenges for social distancing. So we're going to do things where we can Get get the get the most uh, number of employee, uh, employees back, people working back, uh, with the least risk, and that's that's where we're going to start. But it's going to be working very very closely with the business community to to get it done. We're very mindful uh, of the great uh, desire, particularly among well among all business, uh, certainly among small business, to get back at it. Uh, we understand the, the the problems that small businesses particularly have. So. Uh, we're going to be announcing more as, as we move forward, but that's kind of how I look at, you know, what we're going to see beginning uh, around May around May first. Thank you, Governor. Hi, Governor. Hi, Dr. Acton. This is Molly Martinez with Spectrum News. Following in that same vein, once the economy does start to reopen, I imagine there's going to be a huge influx of people, sort of flooding. I think we're all a little cabin fevery. Um, will there be any incentive to get people to voluntarily continue to self-isolate? Well, I don't know if we've ever thought about that. Um, you know, we're, we're open to any ideas. I'm not sure that that's been something that we've really, that we've really looked at. Uh, I mean, the, the incentive 
I, I think uh, is that everyone wants to stay safe, but everyone also wants to get back into doing some of the things that we all we all like to do. And so that's a balance that everybody's going to have to make. Uh, we're going to ask people continue to do the social distancing. Um, that's going to be continued to be part of this. Uh, you know, the workforce, the workplace is going to look different. Uh, retail shops are going to look different. Um, so it's going to be different. But again, uh, these are not going to be things that people can't figure out how to do. I mean, what we've seen in the last few weeks is with the businesses that are in place, people have kind of figured out how to how to do it. Uh, and we're going to help them. We're going to bring experts in. Um, and that's that's the work that uh, uh, Frank Sullivan is, is heading up with his with his group and the lieutenant governor's working on as well. Kevin Landers, WBNS 10 TV. My question is for the governor. Uh, now that schools are closed for the academic year, what can you tell parents about what will begin to open for the summer as the weather gets warmer, pools, zoos, museums, all these things that kids and parents have enjoyed? Is there any hope that you can give parents about what they can do with their children for the summer? Well, I fully, <laughs> I fully understand that. Uh, Fran, I have eight kids and 24 grandkids and we we understand uh, the kids need to do things uh, in the summer uh, so you know part of this is 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 a balance how do you uh, you know reduce the risk of infection uh, but at the same time have a good time let kids get out um, you know our state parks are open uh, every park but one uh, so there's ample opportunity for kids to go out there. There's metro parks uh, that are open in many, many parts, parts of, of the state. Um, you know, there's a lot of activities that people can do and continue to, to stay apart. Uh, and a lot of those are activities outside. Uh, we're seeing, a, a, as it's been reported in the news media, a, a run on uh, uh, garden seeds and uh, people are planting gardens at a apparently at a, at a record rate getting out and as Dr. Atkins says you know getting their hands into, into the dirt uh, so there's a lot of things that, that people are, are in fact doing and I don't minimize the things the fun things that people aren't doing uh, I get it uh, you know we all love amusement parks we all love going to uh, or at least I do going to baseball games and doing other things, but that is the reality. Uh, the reality is simply not changed. The reality is that we have kept the curve down, so our hospitals are not overrun. But we still have the virus out there, and there is this, there's still the threat uh, of of that virus, and it's a particular threat, obviously, to people who are older. It's a particular threat of people who have a medical problem, no matter no matter what their age. The other reality is that anybody can be a carrier. Uh, anybody who gets it can be a carrier, even if they don't really manifest it uh, themselves. And again, what Dr. Acton has said is we need to assume everybody is a carrier. Uh, the numbers that came out that I cited the other day that came out of the Marion prison uh, should shake us up a little bit. And those numbers would indicate that at least in that set of group of people, of the people who tested positive, 39% of them have absolutely no symptoms. So again, you know, you can't tell if someone has has this by whether they have symptoms or not. And that's that's what makes it one of the things that makes it it's so dangerous. So we're trying to move back forward. 
looking at opportunities for kids to to do different things, and we'll we'll kind of work this through this. But every time I think whatever I say as governor, what parents ought to think about is you know what are the risks, and what are the risks of of my child you know getting this and then infecting the family and and maybe in, infecting others. So people are going to have to you know look at look at those things and and make those choices. Good afternoon, Governor and Dr. Acton. This is Laura Bischoff, Dayton Daily News. Um, you know, large swaths of Ohio's population are at high risk. We have 34% obesity rates, 22% smokers, I think 10% asthmatic, 10% COPD, lots of people over 60. I'm hearing from a lot of readers who are concerned about going back to work in retail settings, um, but also being concerned about their health, but they at the same time need the paycheck. So how are you going to try and support or protect those kind of workers who are, represent a large portion of the population? Well, Laura, that's a very difficult question. I, don't, I do not have a great answer for that. Um, you know, families who have somebody in the family who, who, who has a, a medical condition, um, you know, that poses a, the very difficult uh, choices. And very difficult decisions, and, and uh, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, you know, what we hope is that where possible, employers will help that person figure out can they work from home. I know that's you know doesn't always work. It doesn't work in retail, as you point out. Uh, but there are some jobs that you can work from home. There are also jobs that you could be more isolated at work. Um, and so, you know, reduce the risk of you taking that back uh, to a family member who, who is more susceptible. I don't know. Dr. Acton, you want to comment at all on that? Or? You know, Laura, you bring up, you know, people are sort of, I've heard a school of thought out there, I'll put it this way, that healthy people can go about their business and, and risk getting this disease, which we are increasingly knowing is not necessarily true. Um, a lot of healthy, even young people um, can get this disease and then have that, that tank on them. People will say they don't die. Um, but they're, you know, I'm talking to nurses every day who are reaching out and saying what they're seeing on the ward. So I think, I think because we're not seeing it, or at least not in, in this TV um, setting, what's really going on, people get very, very sick from this. And and in Ohio, we know that we have some of the worst health outcomes in the country in terms of a lot of the, the diseases that you mentioned. So I forget, I looked at some numbers, but some 60-some percent of us have at least one of those risk factors, um, starting at very young ages. Um, and I, I, think, I think it's really important to say we have got to think about this timeline in a very gradual way. I don't think we all know. It's very hard to see more than a week or two ahead of you, let alone a month or two or three ahead. Um, but what we're really talking about is sort of loosening the norm we're in now. I think that's a better way to think of it, as more things can become essential. And, and as we lean into that, each of the necessary policy discussions around that will surface. And they're all interrelated. You, it's very hard to talk about business without childcare, someone mentioned yesterday, or 
as a parent, what are you going to do with your kids that came up? And so we have teams of people right now that are, they have to look at it in each silo. For instance, the business group the governor mentioned is looking at a certain segment of the business world. What are the best practices? What are the least risky things to open up? And what are the more risky and how you do that? And similarly, in each of those silos, we have to look at how can we reinvent ourselves? How, how can we make this less risky and open it up? And then you have to step back and look at the whole of how all those things relate to each other and what net effect they will have on the virus spread. It is a three-dimensional chess game of policy, and that's why you are seeing just the really agonal kinds of work behind the scenes. And we all want quick answers to the one question, can I go to camp or not? We're really not out of the woods yet. You know, our numbers are still plateaued. And we don't know how long it will take for them to come down. And, and, and we're trying to get the answers to those policy questions. But balance getting us out and about in our livelihoods as well as our lives. So it is a very complex discussion that doesn't lend a quick answer to your question. Um, but I think those are the questions and walls we will all hit across this country and all around the world as we try to work our way out again. Thank you. Tara Morgan with ABC6 News. Uh, this question could be for either one of you. Um, as businesses reopen, you kind of, Dr. Acton, you talked a little bit about which business is risky and which isn't. What about those one-on-one -on -one businesses, those salons and barber shops? I mean, Governor, you talked about masks being used in businesses, but do we need to limit customers and things like that? Well, that's a, good, that's a very good question, and uh, it's probably the most frequently asked question I get is, when can I get a haircut? Uh, <laughs> or, or when can I go, the, go to the salon, beauty shop? Uh, I get those questions a lot, and I, under, I understand, as you can see, I'm, I'm past due for, for a haircut. Um, the real question it, it does come down to, you know, can that be done safely? Um, you know, it's a very close, con obviously by its nature, uh, close contact. And so that's something we're exploring. Uh, we're exploring with, with the, the board uh, that, that regulates uh, the, the, those two professions. And we hope to have more. But it is something that I fully understand and I understand people's desire to do it. The nature of it is it's, it's close work. Uh, and you cannot stay six feet away and, and, and do that. So figuring out how that can be done in a, in a, in a safe way is, is something that, you know, has to, be, has to be worked on. And if I could add, Governor, you know, there is our understanding of all this is evolving still hour by hour, as you all know. And each of these industries, I mean, this is where we begin to innovate. Every one of these industries is getting a hold of CDC guidance as it's made available. Um, you've got NIOSH and you've got OSHA and people are working collectively. It's not something we're having to invent all ourselves, but you know, whole industries are trying to figure this out for themselves. So now that we are all starting to understand this virus better, I think where we're going to see is a lot of these industries trying to figure out ways to make it as safe as possible. So it really is going to be a partnership um, way beyond. This isn't just a gov government thing. This is really the whole private sector 
all our best ingenuity being put to the test to try to figure this out alongside the health and the science. So, so I think we'll see a lot of innovation yet to come and these answers yet to unfold in ways that none of us would have dreamed possible. Um, I think we'll see a lot more home working. Anyone who telecommute reasonably and keep their business going should keep doing that. Like anyone who could maximally do things the way we're doing it now but still advance their work should do it. And the ones that really need that intimate contact, those are the ones where we're, we're trying to figure out how to do it differently. Thank you. Adrian Robbins with NBC4, and my question's for Dr. Acton. Uh, many people have wondered, for the longest time, we talked about the importance of testing before reopening the state. Are we at a comfortable place for you that you think it's safe to start reopening on May 1st when it comes to testing? And when we do get this reagent shipment in, do you think at that point we'll be at a, how much better of a place, I guess, will we be mid-May when we do get that part of the test in? So as I've, I've often described May 1st, I, you know, to me, we got into this and we had to do some orders in some very blanketed ways. Like it was a quick shutdown. And really, again, when they write the history books on this, I mean, it's pretty much a miraculous thing that we did. And it's really the people at home who have done this. But those policies were made boom, boom, boom. And you couldn't get, you know, these are very hard things to get in the weeds on. Now, with some time, we have whole teams forming and working on each of those nuanced things. And, but I see May 1st as really a, a kind of revisit of all that and seeing what else could be almost made more essential and how can you expand that more. At the same time, we know that we won't have what is being recommended either in the, the, the president's plan or any of the other plans that have been laid out. Um, that testing will not get there by May 1st. I, that's just not possible, so that, that's just true. Right now we are doing between two and 4,000 tests per day over the last week. I'm looking at some notes because I asked this very question. Um, Harvard put out a study that talked about that you needed 152 tests per 100,000 population. I believe that's the number, fact check me on that because this is my little notes that I scribbled here. Um, you know, the more testing, we want more and more and more because ultimately there are two types of tests, remember, the one that says you have it and the ones that say you had it and within that there's a whole different bunches of types of tests and new science and some are not turning out to be accurate, et cetera. So testing is a big quagmire of its own. But we really need to get to the Harvard numbers ultimately gives us better control better ability to find the person who has it and also test their contacts. Right now we're, we're, we're keeping those tests to such a small group of our population, we're having to ration them basically. And um, having a greater ability will really remember two sides of the house, the dimmer switch. Well, the dimmer switch is all dependent on our ability to manage the fires and that's all based on testing. So, so more tests equals better firefighting. <laughs> Hope that helps. So we're not there yet, by far. Thank you. Good afternoon, Dr. Acton. Uh, ben Schwartz with WCPO in Cincinnati. Um, I want to ask you about as we start to gradually reopen the state, will it be, be getting to become acceptable for 
I guess, younger children to go play with their friends outside um, or for, say, family members to go visit other family members from out of state or anything like that? The biggest thing we face is social distancing. It really still will be those basic rules of six feet. Now, masks are going to help, but please know, everyone, it does not replace keeping that distancing. Um, the other things, the hand washing, I had to remind myself the other day, like, because I'd become so meticulous, and, and we have our hand sanitizer here, and, and all those things. In the beginning and for the foreseeable future, and this is me telling people truth. I know people might not want to hear this truth. But to the extent that we can stay in our household units is the best. Now, I'm seeing a lot of clever things being done, and I'm trying to get an understanding of what can be done. You know, I know there are people having campfires where they're trying to sit six feet from each other because I smell it from my house. <laughs> and I see my neighbors, not that I get to right now. And, 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 and I think that's something we're trying to understand. But the truth of this is, when you even think about going to work, it should be essential. Like, you should be going to work and coming back home and still doing the go to the grocery store once a week if you're healthy and wear your mask while you're out there and the business is doing it in this right way. The truth is we should still be in our, our clans for quite some time to come. And the more you do that, once again, I am saving you, you're saving me. This virus loves to spread. It will still overwhelm our healthcare system. It will still overwhelm consumer confidence and people's feeling about being out and about if they start to see a lot of people around them get very, very, very sick. So it's all, we like to see these things again as all in, not interdependent too. And unfortunately, that effect, it's sort of the butterfly effect, that one little thing each one of us does it magnifies over the whole of our whole population. And similarly, I don't expect we'll see travel going on widespread because now we're going to start taking it from cities that are hot spots into other places. So these same things we're doing now are still the same things we need to keep doing at least for a few months in the foreseeable future. And then little by little, we'll try to expand that more. That, that's the truth of what, at least from where I stand, I see happening. Um, and that's how we'll stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Andy Chow with Ohio Public Radio and Television State House News Bureau. For the governor and for Dr. Acton, it seems like the widespread amount of testing at Ohio's prisons revealed a lot about the virus as much as, you know, the asymptomatic, how, how people can be asymptomatic but still have it. Have you given any thought into widespread testing at nursing home facilities? Is there maybe a uh, metric or a threshold that if, if there are a certain amount of cases in one nursing home facility that you would want widespread testing throughout the whole facility? Uh, the, the answer is yes. Uh, nursing homes are a real priority. Uh, one of the things we do every day when we have our 8 o'clock call and our 5 o'clock call and in between as, as we talk about uh, nursing homes. And uh, maybe, Dr. Acton, if you can kind of outline uh, what has been going on in kind of the special relationship that we're putting together between the hospitals and the nursing homes, and maybe also talk a little bit about some of this testing and where we, we hope to take the testing. So it, it, it is a priority. 
uh, is very important. It's, it is close living together. And we know that what can happen, we've seen not only in Ohio, but in other states, you know, what can happen and how fast COVID-19 can move, move through a, a, a nursing home. And it's a very, uh, very concerning thing. Oh, thank you, Governor. So part of our firefighting putting out plan has a command and control structure. It literally has people that man something called the Emergency Operating Center, um, which is basically imagine a NASA watch desk with kind of keep situational awareness around the state. Same way you would do for floods and tornadoes. That's what COVID is now. It's something we are trying to look at at the state and say, this nursing home or this prison or this community or now eventually this workplace, we might see these outbreaks. So nursing homes are a very big one. And to do this, this command and control structure, we've invented something in Ohio um, that's really unprecedented. And the governor has insisted that we move forward for the next 18 months in this way. But hospitals are really the anchors because, you know, this is about for when people get sick. And our hospitals across Ohio, who usually compete, have joined together to work and own and help protect their communities. And we've developed, there are eight regional community hubs, and if you think of our eight largest cities and more of our rural agents, there are these eight regional areas, and we'll have maps as we lay this all out on our website. But there are three zones that are based on the three C's. And this structure of hospitals, both state and regional, and then the very smallest local ones, are the hubs. And now they are in relationships. Um, there's a team of people um, led, led by Director Maureen Corcoran um, and some other team, um, I want to say Bridget Harrison or Sal McElroy, a whole team of people who've worked tirelessly to build relationships with the nursing homes and the prisons and the businesses and the local health departments in those areas, the relationships with the civic leaders. So at the community level, they're all sharing testing. They're going to share PPE. When there's a hotspot, people can deploy in that region to another place that's in more need. They'll deploy back because there's scarce PPE and scarce testing. Part of this structure is to be able to move testing to nursing homes. And there's a whole nother team that's just been working on best practices in nursing homes. They've been working with the industry. I'm telling you, the workers, the people. That's why I know people, when I say don't blame that we have these things, don't blame in a prison. We have one of the best directors of prisons there are in the country. The, everyone is maximizing what they can do. Bad apples, yes, a few things around that aren't. But they are working together with best practices and so when a nursing home has a case, unfortunately, there's so many of them and there's not enough tests. So we have a CDC-based protocol where we might do, we see a few cases in a nursing home, we test as many as we can, we test some staff, and then we say it's there and treat it as such. You have to almost treat it as everyone has it. The dream would be to be able to do what we did with our prisons. The, the numbers are so great. Um, I forget, but it was like 70-some thousand in nursing homes. Another, um, I'll try to get those numbers for you. Someone read them to me on the phone, but I don't have them with me. So the scale is so much bigger. And, but you should be able to know it's in a nursing home. A new thing we're really working on are mobile teams. Um, we also have mobile testing equipment. But even if we have teams with the swabs that can get to those nursing homes wherever they are in the state, 
get it and run it back to our labs and get the testing. So these are all, when I say all of this to you, we are reinventing systems that never existed before. We are making government act in ways it never has in the middle of an emergency. We are building relationships across industries that did not exist in the middle of an emergency. And what's gluing it together, quite honestly, in Ohio, again, I'd like it to look all pretty for you. <laughs> that We have like literally been building it as we go. But the heart and soul of the people leading these efforts and their passion to be at the front of this in Ohio um, is leading us to unprecedented levels of cooperation and innovation on behalf of the governor. So nursing homes, that is our goal eventually to be able to even test throughout them. Andy, more, more testing, uh, that's our goal, uh, to be able to surge in when we see that there is a problem. And I, I don't want to underestimate um, the importance of that hospital in that community. We have asked every hospital to really uh, take ownership, in a sense, and a responsibility uh, to reach out to the nursing homes within their area, their natural area, and establish those relationships if they don't already have those relationships because the hospitals can be uh, a very, very, very important. So um, we have more to do, but this is, a, this is certainly a priority. Thank you. Hi, this is Danny Eldridge with Hannah News Service. Um, my question is for Dr. Acton. Um, can you just talk about um, the importance of antibody tests, where we are with that, and then what, also what we know about how long people stay immune when they've recovered. Thank you. No one really knows the answer yet to the immunity. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, we would love, and the, the couple weeks ago the big buzz was having a test that can show you had it, and almost in some countries they're looking at certificates to say that. And then that you are immune and therefore kind of able to go about your business. And I think that would be a dream thing if we can get to something like that. Um, but the science is, is ever shifting. Um, we do not have many of those tests available yet. We're hoping in the state this week. Uh, Celex, we're waiting for the 1,000 tests um, that they, they promised us this week. And um, that will begin a study. About the antibody testing, there's a really innovative project going on right now um, at OSU, um, and they're working with Battelle. Um, there are many people right now trying to find the right tests that we can do antibody testing on, um, not just to tell us if you've ever had it, which is all I need to do, figure out the prevalence in Ohio with our 1,000 tests, but we really would like to see if we know that you've actually really built up the immunity, that it's almost like a vaccine, that you were vaccinated, that you have that level of immunity. Again, that's, that's the science fiction stuff that itself is miraculous right now. I wouldn't be surprised if we get somewhere on this. Um, will it be in the next week or two? No, but I, I think all the scientists in the world are, are rushing to answer your, your question. from the Cincinnati Enquirer. Um, the, the rising numbers out of the prisons due to the, the widespread testing um, you, you've, you've talked about show that this is, can be easily spread among asymptomatic um, carriers. And we're also seeing a fairly low um, number of, of deaths out of the prisons. 
what, if anything, can we read into the data that we are getting from this uh, widespread testing? Uh, I'm sorry, what can be read into what? what? What can we take away from the results that we're getting back from being able to test that population completely? That I'll let Dr. Acton um, uh, respond. Um, one of the things we obviously are very concerned about uh, is the staff who works the prisons uh, and what happens when they go back home uh, and the potential spread. We're concerned for the staff members. We're concerned for their, for their families. Uh, w one of the things that we're starting to offer, uh, and this is on a voluntary basis, but we're starting to offer the opportunity for members of the staff uh, if they want to stay, um, just like some first responders have, have made this decision, if they want to stay in a, in a motel, uh, this is paid, going to be paid for by the state. Uh, the state is making arrangements to do this. I don't know how many of the, the people who work in our prisons want to do this, but that certainly is something that we are now making available. Um, so, Dr. Acton, you can respond to the rest. Yeah, I think um, the data from the prisons really does show us in anywhere probably in any prison now, you know, that just like nursing homes, um, you expect to find it almost at this point. You expect that our cases will increase. Once you test, and if we were testing in our whole general population, we'd be seeing tons of cases. So we just don't have the test to prove it. So when you're taking that high-risk group, so we aimed at high-risk groups and we aimed at our prisons, and I think it's unusual. I don't think it, there are a lot of places where they've been able to look at a whole prison the way we have, and we've learned um, some interesting things. Um, I know this has happened in other states um, when I talk to people about testing in nursing homes, that there's a ton of asymptomatic folks. Now, a test is at one point in time. First of all, there are still people who will test negative that actually have the disease, and depending on the test, it is a different amount of people. If you're early enough in the disease process, you might still be negative because you don't have enough of a viral load that would be picked up by the disease. Remember, we used to say your case if you're symptomatic. So some of these cases, and we heard upwards of like, you know, 70 some, I mean, it was like astronomical numbers that I heard two days ago in the prison that were asymptomatic. Some of those might continue. If you went back there two weeks later and you tested, some of those people would have just stayed asymptomatic, probably at least 25%, but I think it's going to end up being much higher than that. Numbers are getting up more toward 30 and 40%. Um, and they may, may never have even shown that they had the disease. Um, but then a part of those that were asymptomatic will go on to start having symptoms. They were just too early in their disease process. So it's really following patients clinically over time. And remember, all of, all of these folks are being followed very carefully, you know, through the healthcare system in the prison um, that tells you a bigger story. And, of course, we don't have tons of testing to be saying over and over time. The viral loads, I was told by OSU's um, researchers, Governor, that the viral load is so high on some folks that they have, to, they have to stop and recalibrate the equipment because it actually contaminates equipment doing the testing. This virus is like your perfect science fiction invention. It is just um, um, that, that sneaky of an enemy. And, uh, you know, and, and we don't know how long people shed even after the 14 days. So it is a very infectious disease and very deadly. 
that have come from those test results from the prisons? Um, I do not have the exact number of prisoners, at least on me, but I will look into that for you. How many were hospitalized? And I, I haven't heard any, any of that, so I'll, I'll try to see if I can find the answers, Jackie. Dispatch question for the good doctor. Um, doctor, I'm sure you just made some errors per cup when you were talking about you expect the virus numbers to go up when Ohio reopens. Was I hearing that correctly? Yeah, we should expect, um, you know, nobody knows, um, Randy, what the real prevalence of the virus is at this point in our population because we can't test and get population level data. Um, I've seen some studies and some best guesstimates from far, far greater minds than mine have been saying anything from 15 to 5 to 15 percent, but no one will know until we can test a representative sample of Ohioans, which is what we're attempting to do um, with this rigorous scientific study that I'm waiting for the thousand tests for. <laughs> to do um, with our scientists. Um, and once we get those, it'll only be, it'll be two to three weeks, we hope, that we would know that. Let, but, let, but the bottom line is most people aren't, haven't been exposed and aren't immune yet. And so the second we all go about and interact with each other, we should anticipate that we will spread the virus to more people and that we will see more cases and more people get sick. And let, Randy, let me put this in perspective, uh, and I don't think what Dr. Acton said uh, just a moment ago would be disputed by anyone. Um, once you start opening things up, uh, the contact increases. Uh, the key here is to do it in a way that minimizes as much as humanly possible the risk. Um, we there are bad things that occur from a health point of view and from other ways when things are totally shut down. Uh, so I don't think anyone thinks that we could stay shut down for a year or 18 months. Uh, the devastation to uh, the state families particularly um, would be just absolutely unbelievable. So it is a balance uh, that we are seeking. Um, the goal is to open the state slowly, but get as many people back to work with the least health damage, understanding that when we put people back to work, there are positive things that happen in regard to health as well as in regard to all other things in, mm -hmm. in life. Uh, so this is a balance. Uh, this is a high wire act. Uh, this is not easy. And that's why we're trying to do it very carefully. Um, we put together a business group and we've charged them with working with business and figuring out the safest way to open business and what business should we start with, where we can get the most people back for the least amount of exposure. Uh, but it's also why uh, we cannot look at May 1st as a date when everything's back to normal. 
uh, things cannot be back to normal uh, unless we want to just throw caution to the wind and, and uh, proceed uh, uh, carelessly, recklessly. Uh, that cannot occur in, until this is over with and we, 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 we have uh, a vaccine. But we, we're balancing two things, uh, our, our need to move forward, get people back to work, but also to do it in, in, a, in a very rational way. And there are always trade-offs. Uh, and anybody that would stand up here and tell the people of Ohio there are not trade-offs would, would not be telling them the truth. So it should not come as a surprise that Dr. Acton says that once you start back, no matter how carefully, uh, you, you know, you're going to see the, those contacts go up uh, and certain things are going to happen. But our goal uh, and what we're going to strive for every day is to be very careful in how we do it, be very logical in how we do it, uh, make our comeback um, strong, but also make our come, comeback safe. Hi, Governor. Hi, Dr. Acton. Thank you very much for your leadership through this tough process. This is uh, Luis Gill with uh, Ohio Latino TV. My question to you, Governor, as the minority community is being hit hard during this crisis, and the reality is the, the lack of access technologically, transportation, especially the Afro-American and the Latino and many other communities, Governor, don't you think that this virus was like a little bomb that took the lid off of so many issues of these inner communities like uh, education, health, um, economically, housing? And I know you've been at your job for a short time, two years, but unfortunately this fall into your lab. Don't you think this opened your eyes how things will be in the future Boss, for this community? Uh We've lost the sound. Oh, okay. And uh, so I apologize to everyone. But I cannot hear the question. Oh, no. sorry. Do I start all over? I got the, the, the economy and health, and I, but I, I've missed most, in most the of housing, it. I, you know, I, I apologize. In the housing. I just, I, I, we were also getting uh, a very bad echo. Okay. Um, that we were not getting with any other questioner, and I don't know what was going on in the room, but um, I was not able to pick it up. Can very, you hear me? Okay. Uh, I apologize, but maybe you could try the question again. Yeah, you want to want to want to try it again? Sure. Can you hear me? Okay. Re repeated. Do we have it repeated? Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? He's talking right now. Yeah. And try. Uh, okay. Hello. Can you hear me? Well, too, mm -hmm. so. Go in there. Okay. I'm not sure why. And then, I, then I was getting nothing. So okay, I'm here. Ask still. him to pick up the phone. That will work, sir. Yeah, maybe pick up the phone. Maybe that'll work. Can we do that, or is that? 
I try again? Should I pick up the headset or no? No, no. Just try talking again. Can you hear me, sir? You'll talk in the speaker. You'll talk in the... Uh, can you hear me? No, let's, let's try that. Let's try it. Can you hear me okay? okay. Let's yes, try it. We yes, we can hear let's you try now. It. Okay, well, let's start with the hello. Hi, Governor. Okay. Uh, Governor, I was asking you about the community, the inner communities, you know, the Afro-American, Latino, and so on. You know, unfortunately, they get hit hard because of technology, you know, lack of technology, transportation. They have to, you know, have different means of job. But don't you think that this virus kind of was a little bomb that took the lid off of issues that the community has been lacking, like housing, health, employment, economically, education especially? And do you, did it open your eyes, even though you have been in the job for, you know, short time, but this, this has been issues for for a long time. It opened you eyes to look at things differently and how the future is going to go on for these communities. I think the answer is yes. I think it, it, it brought home in numbers that we could see very quickly uh, the reality uh, of some of the disparity that we have. Um, you know, this is a... Um, disease this is a virus that can impact everyone everyone can get it uh, but its impact uh, certainly uh, can be disproportionate um, one of the things as far as disproportionate as far as poverty um, and that we all we know that poverty uh, is is a problem and that people who are poor uh, generally, many times do not have as good medical care, and so that acerbates this. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think it, it should drive home to all of us um, that we still have disparity in our, in, our, in our communities. We have disparity in the state of Ohio. Uh, you know, these are not the only numbers that show that. Uh, Dr. Acton, I'm sure, can go through many numbers uh, that she sees uh, as someone who's a specialist in public health uh, that show that uh, we have certain populations in Ohio that are disproportionately impacted for the for the for the worse on that. So yes, I think absolutely. Illustrating our, the issues we face, the disparities we have been living with all too long, it's also an opportunity for us to better address them. Thank you very much. Good question. Appreciate it. Question for Governor DeWine. Um, just a moment here. Um, how do you feel about fellow Republicans in the legislature casting doubt on health department members and taking testimony from people who think this whole thing is a plot to cause the president to lose re-election? 
Well, I'd first say that, that um, as far as the president, um, uh, you know, what we're doing in Ohio is consistent with what the president uh, has outlined. I would also also say that anyone uh, who believes what you said should look at the president's comments from yesterday, uh, where the president basically outlined and said, look, things would be a lot worse. We would have lost a lot more people if we had not done the things that we needed, needed to do. I want to close, if I can, uh, to say that today is the official day of the remembrance of, of the Holocaust. Uh, last year we held a remembrance ceremony with survivors and liberators, and it was a, a very moving ceremony uh, for me, I know. Um, growing up, I heard about the experiences from my dad, uh, Dick DeWine, who saw combat in France, Germany, and Austria as a private in, in the Army during World War II. Uh, my dad kept up with the men he served with in his unit, uh, K Company. Uh, Fran and I still very much enjoy talking uh, with Jim Moore. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you're in Missouri watching this or not, but uh, I want to give you a shout-out. Uh, dad served with Jim. Uh, Merle Green, also in Texas, uh, the wife of the late Carl Green, with whom my dad served as well. And, and so, Merle, I hope maybe you may be watching out there as well. Uh, Dad and members of, of his company K arrived at the Dachau concentration camp in Germany uh, just days after it has been liberated. I've never figured out whether it's a second or third day, or, but it was right in that area. Uh, my dad did not talk a lot about the war, uh, but I remember him telling me on numerous occasions about the horror that he saw when he came into the Dachau, Dachau camp. Um, more than 30,000 people we now know perished at the hands of the Nazis uh, there. Uh, when Dad was there, uh, I remember uh, later on he told me that he, when he was there he talked about the ovens uh, that he saw that the Nazis used to burn the bodies of so many of, of the prisoners. Uh, even into his 80s, um, Dad still vividly pictured in his mind the devices they used to slide the bodies uh, into the ovens. He told me about going into a room and seeing fixtures on the walls that looked like shower heads. And those at the camp said that the victims were taken into these rooms, told they were going to take a shower, given the soap, uh, and then the gas started coming out. Uh, Dad also remembered uh, walking down the road near the camp uh, shortly after he got there and encountering a weak, terribly thin man who had a short time before been a prisoner at the camp. My dad and his buddies talked to him, gave him food, gave him cigarettes, and they asked him if they could take his picture. Uh, dad said that he said yes, and what the man said was, as long as I can take it with one of you, with one of the U.S. soldiers. Uh, dad took the picture uh, that we're showing uh, here today. Uh, he relayed the story of Dr. 